Thank you for tuning in. My prayer is that this message is going to be an encouragement to you personally and will cause great growth in your life. It's time to live and it's time to take this next step forward. God bless you as you listen. Why don't you get your Bibles, your notes. If you have a Bible, Bible app, get that as well. And uh, open your Bibles up to the book of Romans chapter number 3, verse 23. Romans 3, 23. While you're finding that, get that place, hold it. And we're going to read through this passage of Scripture uh, a little ways into my message today. And my message is entitled, Why the Cross Matters. Why the Cross Matters. And really, basically, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be answering this question, why the cross? Today, 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 this Sunday begins uh, 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 really something that started about 2,000 years ago that Christians began referring to as Holy Week. And that is, uh, it's actually an eight-day period beginning today, which is the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey and the palm branches were waving and everything. We call it Palm Sunday. Uh, and moving forward up to the Last Supper and then Jesus' arrest and his trial and execution and burial and resurrection. And, and here's, here's the thing about the next eight days, today and the next seven days, is so much of what makes our faith distinct is celebrated during these eight days, beginning with today, Palm Sunday. Uh, culturally, we call next Sunday Easter, but actually it's you know better called Resurrection Sunday. It's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. But today what I want us to do is I want us to look at Resurrection Sunday, which is next week, and I want us to go back three days prior to that. And I'm going to challenge you to do something today. I'm going to challenge you to do something that hopefully will jolt your mind, that will force you to refocus just a bit. In fact, Jesus told his disciples uh, that what we're about to do today, that they were supposed to do that regularly. They were supposed to do it often until we uh, actually meet together in eternity with Jesus, which is yet to come. Now, why is that the case? It's because the tradition that we're going to be participating in today it keeps us focused on Jesus, which is really the core of what our faith is all about. I like to call it Holy Communion. Uh, that literally means Holy Koinonia, uh, or I guess you could say Holy Fellowship is, is what it means. Uh, holy Communion goes by a lot of different terms. It's known as the Lord's Table. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Others call it the Divine Liturgy. Uh, it's called the Breaking of Bread. It's called the Eucharist. It's called Mass. Maybe you know it by one of those other names. But, but I just want to say right up front today, the name is not really what's important. Because we weren't commanded to call it a certain thing. But doing it is what's important. See, participation is important, not the name. I like to call it Holy Communion. And, and, but, but when we do this, when we participate in this, Scripture says it actually brings everything into focus for who we are and what we do. 
Now, one of the things, just to let you know a little bit about a uh, city life tradition, is one of the things that we do is we provide Holy Communion for anyone who would like to participate during our services. And I encourage you to do that. Uh, so, so there's a table that's, that's usually set up right over there or in the back somewhere over there. And, and you can go to that table during, uh, during the worship time, before or after a service. You can have communion by yourself or with your family or with some friends or something like that. And I really encourage you to do that because we should. I, I like to do that sometimes on my own during worship and, or take my family over there. But today is one of those days we're actually going to do it in a corporate sense. We're going to do it together as a group. Um, and today I actually have right beside me the elements of communion. I have the bread, which is the matzah. This is unleavened bread, and it represents the body of Christ. Um, I also have right here some grape juice. It just simply represents the blood of Jesus. And ever, ever since I was a kid being raised in church, I loved Communion Sunday. We did it once a month, the first Sunday of each month. Did any of you guys have that tradition growing up? A few of you did. First Sunday of the month was Communion Sunday, and I always loved it. it for me, some of my best memories growing up in church were communion celebrations. They really, really were. Uh, I, I guess, I guess, as I was reflecting on it, it was just a time of depth, of intimacy. I just felt very, very connected to God through communion. And that's true. That's what it does. It's actually a time of holy power. Um, well, this whole thing actually started about 2,000 years ago. You can read about how it all started in the Bible. Today, I'm going to read you the account from, actually, I'm going to talk you through the account that's found in the book of Matthew, starting in Matthew 26, because it really is the story of the cross. And the story of the cross just has some basic elements. I want to take you through it. Some of you may, may be new to this and going, what is this story? What actually happened on Holy Week? Well, First of all, this is three days prior to, the, to Easter Sunday, there was the Last Supper. Now, Jesus had taken his disciples, and they had come together to celebrate the Jewish Passover. And uh, there was, it's often called, we call it often uh, the Last Supper. The reason we call it that is because it was the last meal that Jesus had with all of his disciples before his crucifixion. Uh, during this meal, he tried explaining that to them, and they didn't get it. They're like, huh, what? <laughs> you know, we don't understand what you're talking about. You see, they didn't know he was actually going to be crucified, even though he was telling them very, very plain right then and there. But, but it was here, during this meal, where Jesus instituted what we call Holy Communion. And he told his followers to do this often until we come together to meet, meet together in heaven with Jesus again. And, and it's not just his followers there, but it continues through all generations. Now, the next part of the story is what I would call the arrest, because right after the meal, Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes there and he begins to pray. His disciples go with him. They fall asleep because it's actually the middle of the night. And and they're there, they're, they're, Jesus is having a time of prayer, and, and uh, it's excruciating prayers. He's, he's like being very emotional. The Bible says like, like uh, sweat came like drops of blood from him. That would have been like capillaries would have been breaking as he was just under intense, intense stress. That is a medical phenomenon. And, and, uh, and it's, we know a couple of the things that he prayed because it's written in the scriptures. One of the things he prayed is that, is that God would just remove this, this, uh, this, this, 
road he had to walk. He just he said, like, God, if there's any other way this can be accomplished other than me being crucified, please. Um, but, but you know, he ended up saying, no, okay, God, I understand. It's not what I want, it's what you want. And really, that should be, that's a good prayer for us as well. It's like, God, it's really what you want, not what I want. Another one of his prayers that's interesting, this is like his final prayer. He was praying that Christians would all get along with each other. Did you know that? That's one of the final prayers of Jesus Christ. He was praying that we would be united and we would be one and there would be no schism or division among us because God understands, Jesus understands the power of unity because where Christians are unified, I'm telling you what, hell cannot, hell cannot stand against the body of Christ like that. I pray the same thing. So don't be getting grouchy at your neighbor. Like, all right, all right. But this was all happening and he was praying and then his betrayer came up and approached him and identified him. It was actually one of his disciples and he had turned against him and his name was Judas. And what Judas had done is he had summoned some of the Jewish religious police, best way to call them, and they actually had the power and authority to arrest Jesus, and they arrested him there in the middle of the night. The other disciples saw what was happening, and they ran and scattered, and they hid, and they stayed scattered. I see the religious leaders, they hated Jesus with a passion because he was getting more attention than them, and they didn't like that. They just wanted him gone. So the story goes forward after he's arrested, then he moves into the trial. Uh, really what happened is these religious leaders uh, here in the middle of the night, they, they got people out of bed and they held this mock trial where, and, and it, was, it was ridiculous. It was just, they were mocking him and they eventually you know, took him all the way up to Pilate, the Roman governor. And, uh, and there was a formal charge that morning that was made by Pilate, the Roman governor. And the, the formal charge was this man says he was the king of the Jews. Uh, Pilate, he really knew that Jesus was not guilty of any legitimate crime, but to save face, he released Jesus to be crucified. Which then leads up to the next part of the story of the cross, which is the execution. You see, the Roman soldiers, they then now had authority over Jesus, and they began to mock him. And they, they even created a, a mock crown made of massive thorns. And they, and they took it, and they shoved it on his head, like, okay, so you're the king of the Jews? You know, that's, that's your charge? So, boom, we'll, we'll show you. And that morning, they nailed Jesus Christ to a wooden cross putting the execution charge above his head, saying, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It was around the middle of the day, probably somewhere around noon, and, uh, and the scriptures tell us that the sky grew dark, that the, there was like, it was like an eclipse, except it lasted about three hours. And during this time, at about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and... Uh, he gave up his spirit. Which then takes us to the next part of the story of the cross, which is actually woven through it all. And that's the part about the blood. See, his blood flowed from his head and his hands, flowed from his back, his body, his feet. It was an ugly sight. Jesus Christ was hanging there naked on that cross. The blood dripping off of him. It was ugly. The Bible says even that he wasn't even recognizable as a human. That's how bad he looked. It's not these pretty little pictures of the crucifixes that we have. It was ugly. It's more like what you would see 
from that movie, The Passion of the Christ, because that actually pretty well reflects what I see in the scriptures. But his blood is critical to the narrative. Now I want to tell you something. We, we kind of like bristle at the thought of blood, right? I mean, some of you don't. Some of you are like in medical industry and you get really happy. You see blood like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, you're all excited about it. I'm not one of those. I am not one of those. I don't like blood. Um, I, I, I don't like it at all. I'll do everything to avoid it. I don't even want to, anyone to draw blood. You know, if you draw blood for me, I'm, pro- I'm going to pass out. It's just, it's over with, all right? But scripture never shies away from the mention of blood. In fact, I would say it's kind of like this red thread that goes to the scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. If you eliminate the references to blood from the scriptures, all that remains is a book about history and literature. Really. I would say anything that's that important to God to have it all through the scripture should never be disregarded. And we need to talk about it. Prior to Jesus, there was this uh, sacrificial system that was in the Old Testament that God had actually ordained. It was part of the, the worship of that time. And here's what happened. Through that sacrificial system, the sins of mankind would be covered by the blood of innocent animals. Now today we bristle at that, don't we? And, and rightly so, rightly so. In fact, some, some from afar look at Christianity and say, well, the, the roots of your religion is, is all of that, and, and how can you do that? Well, actually, the truth is, is the bristling toward that came from Christianity. We're the ones who brought that into society saying, we don't do that anymore. That's in the past, you see? So anyone who says, well, that's not, that's actually a Christian belief. We don't need to be doing that. Um, but really, the imagery of it is something we need to look at and digest because when we think of that, it really illustrates in a rather harsh way the seriousness of sin. It's because the penalty of sin is death and it has to be paid for by the guilty party or by an acceptable substitute. So the way God set it up to cover, see that's a law of God, it cannot be changed. So God set this up in order to cover sins Animals had to be offered in this, uh, in this way and their blood had to be shed and they had to be unblemished and perfect animals. And this sacrificial system, it really taught people that the atonement for sin takes place only through the shedding of blood. Now this Old Testament uh, arrangement before Jesus, it was actually a foreshadowing of what was going to happen through Jesus, which is what we celebrate. Now, Here's some interesting things to understand about this. The animal sacrifices could only cover sin. Therefore, we needed an ultimate lamb, so to speak, that could remove all of man's sin. Uh, Jesus wasn't just a man, but he was the son of God who was walking around in human flesh. And Jesus Christ was the perfect spotless lamb of God. That's why we call him the lamb of God of God. He was this uh, flawless, he was the only one who had a flawless life. Therefore, he becomes the suitable sacrifice to take upon himself the guilt of all mankind to shed his blood once and for all. The perfect sacrifice is Jesus. Because again, before Jesus, sins could only be covered by the blood of the animals 
And the problem is, is that because it only covers, you actually have to go back again and again and again, over and over and over and over to get your latest sins covered because people sin, right? But it was different with Jesus. So with Jesus, sin is permanently erased, not just incrementally covered up, you see? Incredible. Jesus' blood forgives all of the past sins, the present sins, and your future sins. And his blood sacrifice still works today, even though you weren't born when it happened, and even though you hadn't even thought about sinning, because you couldn't have been thinking about sinning when he sacrificed himself for us. And and there's also like absolutely no amount of money uh, that could redeem us from sin either. The price of Jesus' blood is greater than anybody. It's only the blood of Jesus from the perfect, sinless Lamb of God can redeem us from sin. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote, wrote it this way, and I, I like this. this. is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus, the blood of Jesus. My friend, it is central to our faith. So back to the original question, why the cross? Well, one of the reasons for the cross is to purchase us back. You see, what Jesus' blood did is Jesus' blood purchased us from a life of slavery to sin. Now, I know you might say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, I'm a pretty good person. I don't feel enslaved by sin. But the truth is, no matter how moral you are, no matter what a good person you may seem to be, every human being has this sin nature. And you know it's true. So to set us free so that sin cannot own us and shackle us like prisoners, like slaves, a price had to be paid. We had to be bought out of slavery. Okay, see, so the scripture says this. It says the, the one who sins is the one who will die. So what happened is then the perfect Lamb of God took death, Jesus took death in our place. And because the Father accepted Christ's payment of death, we are set free from being owned by sin. The chains are broken. That's why we sing songs like, the chains are broken. Sin doesn't have a hold on me anymore. Thank God. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, this is in Ephesians 1, 7. He says, in him we have redemption, you know what redemption is? It's when you, you that, that's, that's an exchange. Okay, that's what Christ did. We have redemption, how? Through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So redemption basically means we are bought back from sin's ownership. Back to the big question again. So why the cross? Well, another reason is because it makes us blameless before God. Uh, this is found in the scripture earlier that I asked you to look up, Romans 3.23, so I want you to get that ready. See, because in this passage, you're gonna see that the father accepts the sacrifice of his son as a full payment for your sin. Jesus is that substitute. He is that satisfactory substitute because he is the sinless lamb of God. Okay, look at this. This is great. Romans 3.23, this is one of the first scriptures I ever memorized as a child when I was in Sunday school. It says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. All means all. (laughs) And all 
means all, are justified. How much do you have to pay? Nothing. (laughs) You are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. How? Through the shedding of his what? Blood. So that, and we receive it by faith. That means we believe. He did this, God did this to demonstrate his own righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, God loves you so much. If you sin, there, there is a death penalty. Did you die the moment you sinned? No, no, none of you have. You didn't like sin and die, boom. <laughs> no, that's the forbearance of God. He wants you to accept Christ. So Jesus, what he did by, by dying for us, he placed all of our sin, past, present, and future, into his account, and he paid it all. He paid it all. He paid it in full. So when God looks at us, when the Father looks at us, you know what he finds? He, see, he looks at us and he, see, he sees perfection. I know you're not perfect. I know, I know. I know some of you. I know you're not perfect. I know me. I know I'm not perfect, but he doesn't see imperfection. He doesn't see any guilt. You're actually declared legally righteous before God, even if you don't act like it. Now, you've heard the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, right? How sweet the sound. No, I'm not going to sing it. You sing it. We have other people that do that, all right? That beautiful song is talking about this right here. How crazy, how amazing, how awesome. We are declared legally righteous before God. (laughs) That's awesome. Let's get back to the question, but why the cross? Well, another reason is because it gives us access to God. You can go boldly to God because of what Jesus did for us. Let me explain how this worked. In the Old Testament, there was this place that was known as the most holy place, and it was in the temple. It was in the center of the temple, and it was this inner room, uh, and, and, and the, the front of this room was covered by this four to six inch uh, a thick curtain. It was a huge, thick, very, very, very heavy curtain up really super high, and, uh, and, and behind that curtain, it's also known as a veil, uh, but we think of veils as being transparent. This was not transparent. It was very thick. Uh, behind this was the most holy place. It's where God dwelt. That's where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. God dwelt right there. Now, nobody could enter into the presence of God. No one could enter into the Holy of Holies except once a year, a high priest. He could go in there only after he had carefully prepared himself with sacred rituals and he had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice before he went behind the curtain into the presence of God to commune with God once a year. In fact, it was such a serious deal that if he wasn't able to go before God, if he hadn't done all the right things, he would die there in the presence of God. They, they, would, they would literally tie a rope around his leg and they would put, and they, they would put uh, bells on his feet so that as he was in the presence of God walking around and dancing or whatever, you could hear him going. But if the sound stopped, there was a problem. That meant he didn't do all the right things and he was struck dead and they would have to pull him out. How would you like that to be your job? <laughs> but see, he had to make sure... But things are different now. At the moment when Jesus Christ gave up his spirit, do you realize that that curtain, that veil on that, was, that was at the temple 
in front of the most holy place. It was torn in two, and the, the, the tear started at the very top, impossible for man to do so. No man could tear it anyway. It was torn from the top all the way down to the bottom. And it literally opened up and gave access to anyone into the presence of God. I'm telling you guys, today the only reason you can approach God is basically, spiritually speaking, God has done all of that stuff for you and he sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus and when, again, you go into the presence of God, you've already done all that. God's not gonna strike you dead. You can go boldly. Oh, like, look at this. This is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse nine. This is good stuff, guys. This is good. Look, some of you, you've been afraid of God. God might do this, God might do that. You need to stop that nonsense. Give your life to Jesus. Get, get on the blood of Jesus and look what happens here, okay? Hebrews ten nineteen says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Now, every single time you pray, you can pray big, bold, audacious prayers directly to the Father and walk right into the most holy place because the blood of Jesus has been applied to your life. And all of that comes together on these elements right here. And in a few moments, we're going to serve you small pieces of matzah, the unleavened bread, representing the body of Christ. We're gonna serve you the fruit of the vine, representing the blood of Jesus. I know you might say, why do communion? There's a good answer for that. Why do communion? Well, you know what? I'll just tell you something. When I was a kid growing up, mom, my dad wasn't at home on Sunday mornings. He was out at the church getting stuff ready for church. But mom always got me out of bed. And she would come in my room, open the curtains, and would sing a song and sing, rise and shine. She would sing all these crazy songs. Yeah, I'd never liked it. I didn't like it at all. But, but she would sing these songs, open the windows, and, and, uh, and, and, she would say, get up, it's time for us to go to church today. Now I'll tell you, in my house, it was not an option. Do we go to church today or not? Let's see, let's think about it, let's pray about it. Let's, let's see if we feel led. You know, I've had people say, well, I have to wait to see if I feel led to go to church. Like, okay, whatever. Um, but we didn't feel led. You know, no, I was told to get up and go to church. And I'm, I am glad my mom and dad did that. Parents, I am glad my parents did that to me. I am glad I have no regret at all. I didn't lose anything. I gained a lot. I was drugged to church on Sunday morning, and I learned to love it, and I did. But why did I go to church in those early days? It's because mom told me to. That's why I went to church. And I knew if I didn't, if I tried not to, I would still get drugged to church, but it would be very bad for me. Okay, now why do we do communion? It's pretty simple. It's because Jesus tells us to. But there are huge benefits, but we're just going to obey God. This is one of the practices Jesus said that we are to observe over and over throughout our life as followers of Jesus. We're commanded to repeat it. Why? So that we'll never, ever forget the core of the gospel, which is what I'm telling you about today and what really happened on the cross. This makes us think about it, and that's a good thing. See, see, Christianity has a lot of peripheral stuff. There's a lot of stuff we like to talk about and there's so much to our faith and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But if we talk about only that and we get away from the core, we've missed it all. That's why Jesus said, you need to do this so that you don't ever forget about everything that you're talking about really comes back to this. Jesus, Jesus, we take this, it's all about Jesus. 
He allowed me to escape my punishment because of what he did. See, communion should make us feel reverent and have respect and appreciation and gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus. Communion makes us remember this. It does. It makes us remember that sin must be punished because when you think about the reality of what these elements are all about, you understand that these elements really speak about a death sentence, about that unchangeable law of God. The punishment for sin, as as outlined from the very beginning of the Bible, is death. That's something we have to accept, that there is actually a death penalty held over every single one of us. And guys, it's not a mere physical death, but it's an eternal death, which in the scripture is described as a lake of fire. It is a place of horrible misery that continues throughout eternity. And the judgment for eternal death is upon us all. Yet there is one way out, and that is to allow someone else to take that penalty of death for us, and that someone was Jesus. Oh, will you listen to what the book of Isaiah says about this? Oh, this is beautiful. Isaiah 53 says, he took the punishment that made us whole, Through his bruises we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all of our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. When he was beaten, he was tortured. He didn't even say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared. He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. See, by receiving this gift of Jesus taking our place, we escape certain eternal death. We do so by praying to God, asking Jesus to wash us of our sin, and we commit our lives to him. And as we do so, it becomes as if we have never sinned. We are literally without blemish before God, the God who literally gave everything for you so that you could do that. At City Life Church, we practice open communion. What, what that means is you don't have to be a member of our church to practice uh, communion, but you do need to be a part of the body of Christ. In other words, that means you need to be a believer. You need to have requested Jesus to forgive your sins with his blood and to cleanse you from all, all, all unrighteousness. If you've never asked Jesus to become the Lord of your life, if you've never requested him to wash your sin away, if you've never given your life to Jesus, now is the time to do so. I'd like for there to be no movement in this room at this time. Please, none at all. I want you to focus your eyes internally. Because you might be here today and you've never really surrendered your life to Christ. Possibly you've just drifted from God but you want to partake of Holy Communion. Do you see the power that's behind this now? If you want to know this Jesus that I'm talking about, you want to give your life to him, you want that new beginning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond very simply by lifting your hand when I count to three. That way I can see you clearly. I can lock my faith in with yours. If you want to be part of this salvation prayer, please lift your hand as I count to three. One, two, three. Lift your hand in this room and we will pray together. Lift your hand for me. Thank you. 
Thank you. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask us to pray. If you lifted your hand, I want you to pray these words with me. Congregation, I want you to pray these words as well. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. I believe you're the Son of God. Forgive my sins because it's time for me to live. I give up my past. I embrace the future that you have for me. Thank you for giving me life. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you discovered your street of influence? Whether it be family, government, business, arts and entertainment, faith, health and vitality, or education, head over to culturalstreets.com and discover your street today.